Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So, uh, a lot's going on this week in particular, and I was reminded of uh, something you told me in the past when when I brought up another situation that was kind of chaotic. So, um, we don't always address current events, but of course, this week there was storming of the Capitol building, and uh, and even I was sitting in a, a meeting yesterday at work, and there was a question of like, well. As, as leadership, what should the company say about this? And, uh, you know, understand that people have ex- different ways of processing this and it's, it's a pretty big deal, et cetera. And I remember thinking, um, man, yeah, it is unfortunate in a lot of ways because so many people are going to respond to this in, uh, in, in a really negative manner. We've talked before about being contemptuous and, um, how that relates to politics and viewing the other side as, as just beneath you and uh, undeserving really uh, the polarization piece. And I was just thinking, man, Metzger said something to me one time that was really helpful, particularly as a believer. And that was when you told me it, it was something along the lines of, well, what do you expect when you're in Babylon? You know, what do you expect from the Babylonians? And, uh, and it goes into the, the whole frame of uh, the American church in exile. And uh, if, if we are indeed now find ourselves in Babylon, well then, of course, what do we expect? And it, it really gives me a, a sense of peace that uh, I'm, I'm part of a people set apart. And that is my call as a believer. And so I, I actually don't need to get wrapped up in, uh, in a lot of these political... P- pieces where I can just get enraged and find myself uh, falling into the trap of becoming polarized on one side or the other. Um, So I found that was helpful. I'm curious your thoughts on processing what's going on this week and, uh, and, and kind of what, what's your take on things with that context? Yeah, there's uh, well, there's uh, certainly a lot of ink being spilled on this, uh, what a really is a tragic event. And then, um, and then a whole lot of social media on it. So we don't want to, uh, burden the cloud here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, sorry, a little, uh, diversionary trail. One day we will talk about the uh, cloud not being green and how social media, just all the stuff we were cluttering on the cloud and then keeping this thing powered. We're, we're really not in touch with, um, None of us are environmentalists anymore, and that includes uh, includes the two of us. Uh, this is uh, these things are what drives today uh, with social media is contributes to this problem, and uh, it contributes in this way because uh, yeah, I, I've often said people are shocked by this or that. It could be uh, who knows. Could have been um, the 2016 Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage. It could be. And I asked him, I said, well, what do you expect? I mean, these are Babylonians are going to behave like Babylonians. And to your point, Pat, uh, I find that I find myself asking this question as I get older. And um, for listeners, I'm 189 years old. And I find find myself... um, you know, I have, I have people approach me and they say they'd like to be mentored or discipled or whatever. And I find myself um, asking questions to try to discern first, do they understand the times? Do they understand the times we're in? Or are they open to understanding the times that we're in? Peter Berger famously, I mean, not Peter Berger, uh, Max Dupree famously said in his book, Leadership uh, is an Art, he said, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. 
And I, I don't think that uh, most Americans, but let's just talk mostly about our, our faith community, American, American Christianity is good at defining reality. I don't think they discern uh, reality. <laughs> and I would say if you were to put it in one word, I think it's fair to say that uh, our times, we are spiritually speaking exiles in a land of exile, just like the nation of Judah were exiles in a land of exile. And I've found, Pat, that um, the people I know, the believers I know who eat, breathe, and sleep that, I mean, they are convinced, not by, not because of me, but that's that area, they are um, as convinced as you can be that they don't they don't get wrapped around the axle on this stuff. You just said you said it well earlier earlier. You don't want to be like uh, so many Americans are going to get pretty wrapped up in this. Well, getting wrapped up in something isn't a bad, necessarily a bad thing. Getting wrapped around the axle is. Yeah, well said. And um, they become politicized, and so I find myself thinking. Well, you would give away the game as Christians that that uh, not not a sufficient number of Christians recognize that, that uh, our best precedent is the Babylonian exile. And if we are in Babylon this morning, Pat, doing this podcast, <laughs> first that would really be unusual. <laughs> uh, second. Yeah, had had Nebuchadnezzar decreed that uh, children were going to be uh, sacrificed, and you, know, you would wake up and say, that's a, "What?" Because he'd say, "That's that's Babylonians behaving as Babylonians." I mean, you think about this: when God, well, I I think, for example, believers would do well to just read the book of Habakkuk in one sitting and read it this way. It's similar to, you finally get so pissed off at what's happening that you punch up God on your mobile phone. You just happen to have a direct line to him. And you call him up. And you basically say, what the hell is going on? That's Habakkuk. And he rages against you know, what the Chaldeans are doing, the Babylonians. They were known, for example, for uh, flaying people alive. They were known for raping and pillaging. And we say raping, we're not putting that lightly because God's going to use that very language in a moment. But here's Habakkuk. And once he's vented his spleen, God says, well, yeah, I see all this. And I am getting ready to do something. And you can see Habakkuk, arms folded like Mussolini standing on a balcony. Yeah. And by the way, it didn't turn out very well for Mussolini. And God says, it's not going to turn out very well. Either. By the way, Judah, I am getting ready to do something. <clears throat> I'm going to send the Babylonians. And they're going to rape and pillage. And they're going to take you away. Because at this point, Habakkuk pulls the phone away from his uh, ear to make sure that he really did punch in the right number. <laughs> and... Uh, but you come to the end of the book. <clears throat> Time out there, Pat. You come to the end of the book. And you read peace. Now, it's funny you said peace. Because Habakkuk looks around at a land that is verdant. You have the, the olives are growing, the trees are blooming. And he begins to prepare himself. He recognizes that one day, time out, Pat. <coughs> Sip of water. <coughs> he recognizes that one day, this is all going to be destroyed. It's because of what they've done, the, Jude the Judeans, and what they have not done. And he basically says, I will learn to trust the Lord in these good times because these aren't going to last. And 
had the nation of Judah remembered, and probably they did once they were there, but had, had they remembered that, or even if they hadn't, I mean, the first morning they wake up in Babylon, they smell Babylonian bacon. That's our joke, listeners, but it's the idea that would have been very offensive. But, but that's what Babylonians eat. It's a lot like if you were, you know, 100 years ago, this missionary to Timbuktu. And you get there, and the first thing you see, they're running around buck naked, and they're doing X, Y, Z, because that's what Timbuktuans do. You wouldn't roughly back to your tent as a missionary and say, oh, my God, <laughs> these people are acting like they live in Timbuktu. <laughs> Newsflash, they, they do. do. <laughs> and so part of what's going on is we aren't persuaded. By and large, American Christianity is not persuaded that we are exiles living in a land of exile. So... We're shocked when Babylonians behave like Babylonians. And just to put a cherry on this, and we not only do we not recognize exile, we don't recognize it's the bad kind of exile in Scripture. The good kind is what naturally comes when your citizenship is in heaven. And so you come to faith and you are rightly a stranger or alien sojourning through this world. And that's called you, you accommodate yourself to that. That's a good, natural, healthy tension. The second kind of exile scripture is a self-inflicted wound. It's not even a wound. We should call it exactly what God calls it. It is idolatry. It's when... A people of God <clears throat> love something more than they love God or love something more than they ought to love it. And yes, Pat, to your point, and this is particularly true of, I'm, I'm a, I'd call myself an evangelical Catholic, Catholic little C. When I read that 80% of American evangelicals voted for this president, you just, you go, that's, I mean, there are, there are other ways, and we've talked about them on this podcast, that you, you could, you could, um, could have voted, not necessarily for the other party, but, <clears throat> in fact, well, I'll throw this out, what the heck. I mean, what would it have meant had, four years ago, the evangelicals acted like a body of Christ and said that we're all going to abstain. We're going to vote down whatever we want, the rest, you know, party lines, whatever. But uh, 80 million dis votes are going to disappear for this president. Of course, they'd be horrified. They said, oh my gosh, then Hillary Clinton would have been elected. And uh, well, now we're looking at uh, four years later and uh, we are like uh, we're like the uh, House of Commons after Chamberlain had been rightly recognized as his appeasement had been a horrible mistake with Hitler. They just said, in the name of God, go. Just go. You've gotten us in this huge mess. Go. And we would have had four years of a president who could not in any way have said, I have a mandate. But we were willing to vote for Nero, who fiddled and let the place burn down. And then uh, you have uh, people I know who are all shocked. And then they're shocked when the very thing that the Founding Fathers warned against, that if we become like Athens or we become like Rome, You'll see mob rule. Now, they breached the walls of the Capitol, but they didn't burn it down. But you saw it looks like mob rule. 
and we have a president who doesn't seem to read anything, watches television. One of the worst ways to get information. And uh, we got the leader we deserved. You always get the leader you deserve. And so <clears throat> I find not only are we exiles in the land of exile, but you see the culture's rule because you have believers who are acting like Babylonians. When you act like a Babylonian, it's when you deny you're an idolater. And this goes, this goes across party lines. It doesn't matter if it's a Republican or Democrat. The fact that we wrote about uh, uh, recently and highlighted uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, um, uh, The uh, Righteous Mind, is that uh, once you are persuaded that your political party or your candidate um, is, quote, God's man, as quite a number of Christian leaders said, <clears throat> then you really are off the rails. I mean, you'd have to be, uh, have to have infinite wisdom, infinite, to be certain that you know this is the infinite God's man. I mean, the, the, the appalling idolatry in some of these statements. And yet we all struggle. We just, and then we're shocked when something like this happens. Well, this is, this is, this is Babylonians behaving like Babylonians. That reminded me of uh, a, a wonderful book that I read, a small little book called A Tale of Three Kings. And I try not to use this word often, but it was genuinely life-changing for me. It's a, a fictional story based on the biblical narrative of Saul, uh, David, and David's son, Absalom. And uh, kind of the, the main point that seems to be driven repeatedly as this telling of the story is flushed out, it's looking at when David is... Uh, serving in Saul's kingdom and then getting beat, you know, being hunted by Saul. And David's response never seems to be uh, one of um, anger or retaliation. And, and when David has the chance to kill Saul, uh, I'm sure many are familiar with that story, but um, David does not. He, he cuts a, a slice of his rope. Um, the, the author repeatedly uh, gives David the words to say, what if, what if he is the Lord's anointed? You know, I, I, I don't, I don't understand it. And I don't, I don't, um, I don't believe him to be a righteous man, him referring to Saul, but what if he is the Lord's anointed right now? Yeah. And, and later on when Absalom is uh, basically attempting to overthrow the kingdom and David flees, the the author has this great kind of contemplative thought with David saying, well, what if I am no longer the Lord's anointed? And and what if Absalom is now the, Lord, the Lord's anointed? And I know many, many would kind of hear that and be like, well, of course God wouldn't bless an unrighteous man. But then you read stories in the Old Testament of Babylon and realizing that Nebuchadnezzar at one point was in that situation. The Lord had anointed him to go and destroy Judah. And, and you realize that God uses very sinful, wicked people, but sometimes he still calls them into power. And um, that, that gave me, again, oddly, a tremendous amount of peace in this, realizing, hmm, yeah, maybe, maybe this next guy, girl, whatever, this next leader is actually the Lord's anointed right now. Uh, it's, a, it's a very humbling position, and that was the... That was the biggest change for me. That was a life-changing piece. Was it took the edge off of my arrogance, embracing who I who I thought was the Lord's anointed. When the reality is, like you said, well, yeah, I don't know. I mm -hmm. can't know. Yeah, and probably the next thing the Lord will take the edge off for uh, for you is that uh, the next leader might not be a girl, might be a woman. <laughs> <laughs> We can only just, hope. I mean, <laughs> just let you know that our female listeners are going to hear that and go, "Girl, did he say girl?" <laughs> well said. Well said. Yeah, we're just having. Um, I could just see my daughter's eyebrows going, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. So, um, so here's where again, um, 
and and, and the, again, we we get the leader we deserve, and when we are ignorant of history, and that's not too strong a word, then um, the very thing that the founders feared, the passions of the people, become mob rule. And you have direct democracy versus representative. I do think that our friends that are so high as a kite on social media ought to, ought to at least pull back a little bit and go, okay, social media has many benefits. But what are the unintended consequences that could be catastrophic? And frankly, what we're seeing is that's why Jack Dorsey is having some major reflections on having created Twitter that was supposed to help. You know, the idea <clears throat> the idea was a little communication is good, so a little more. If we could just get more communication, well, what you forget is the very thing that... Um, we see in scripture, there's a caution often, therefore let your words be few. Why is that? Well, Jesus said, every careless word you get, you utter, you're going to give an account of it on the judgment day. Well, of course, when you're in Babylon, this includes even most Christians, you either don't think about judgment, you're not familiar with judgment, uh, you're, you're biblically ignorant. And what you forget is again, just like there's two kinds of exile, there's two kind, there's two different judgments in Scripture. One is for people who don't know Jesus, but the other is for people who do know Jesus. For listeners, if you're going, what? It's in Second Corinthians five, so nothing original here. But that is going to include every careless word you give, because God created by wise words. We read in Ephesians. That the Spirit of God is grieved when we utter these careless words. And, the, and the, so we're becoming a world that's just stuffed with careless words. Um, so the more extreme example, yeah, we said, you know, well, he's God's man or she's God's woman or this or that. And you're right, Pat, we go, how in heaven's name can you know that? You make a great point about David whom we read in scripture was a man after God's own conscience and conscience is self-awareness. So he was more self-aware, even though he made some appalling, appalling sinful actions that had repercussions that tore his kingdom right in half. But he learned from those things and we don't seem to be learning much, frankly. I'm reminded of this. There's the famous story. Don't think it's apocryphal, but it's, maybe it's been embellished a little. But as Benjamin Franklin left Independence Hall after the exhausting Constitutional Convention, I think 1787, legend has it a woman stopped him on the sidewalk and said, uh, so what do we have? And he said to her, a republic, if you can keep it. Now, again, most listeners aren't familiar with that story, and I'm familiar with why George Washington, in his fatherly farewell address, said that our government is an experiment. Can a people be self-governed? Can a nation be self-governed and not ruled by its passions? Now, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about, Mike, those, that mob ruled by their passions. Yeah, probably, but we're part of a tradition, Pat, that beginning as best I could tell about the 1990s, made the notion of our passions an unalloyed good. That you want to be passionate about this and that, passionate, passionate, passionate. The problem with passion is it shrinks peripheral vision. You don't see the bigger picture. So we're part of the whole thing that generates mobs. 
but more than that, we're a part of a generation that doesn't see the big picture. And uh, Washington and others, the framers understood that self-governance requires things, three things. You have to win this sort of freedom. You have to establish it, that is constitutionally, and then you have to keep it and sustain it. You have to win it, establish it, and then sustain it. We want it, probably twice, war for independence with Britain, and then 1812, kind of had a repeat skirmish there, and that's when again, it was noted this week, that's when the walls of the Capitol were breached, the White House was burned, but you also have the, uh, the uh, not only the winning, but then you have the establishing, and that's the Constitution, which delineates, gives limited powers to the three branches. And then you have the keeping of it. And there are those who would say, the beginning with, especially with Woodrow Wilson, 100 years ago, all three branches have been trying to usurp power from the other two. And so... I would suggest to you that this, this experiment is in some grave trouble. And Christians are not helping, by and large, because they're ignorant. They know nothing about what we just, just talked about. They have no idea how they're to be the best of citizens, as was described uh, often of Christians in the past. Because they wouldn't even know what citizenship looks like, and they wouldn't even know what it means to be a citizen. Be faithful to the Lord, even if you're in exile, living in the land of exile. They don't even think we're in exile because they wouldn't even know that for the past X amount of years, uh, we've been pretty much not faithful to the gospel, to discipleship, to the things that, that have characterized the faith, particularly before 1500. And so just like for 500 years, we've drifted off on a path the nation of Judah for 500 years had drifted off their ancient path. I mean, the ancient path, rather. So they ended up in Babylon. I just think we're in Babylon. We're exiles in the land of exile, and we have Babylonians behaving as Babylonians. And if that's a fair precedent, we'll be in this for 70 years. Well, Mike, that's... Uh... Some some could hear this and maybe lean towards the the idea that we're just putting our heads in the sand and ignoring it, and that's not not at all what what we're talking about. So how do you how do you manage to not do that? Why, yeah, what would you question. say in response to that? <clears throat> yes. So first of all, we are not people putting our heads in the sand. We're we're at least. We're maybe dimwits, but we're not that dumb because if you ever try that, you just can't breathe in there. It just doesn't last. <laughs> so, uh, no, we're not. Uh, actually, what we're doing is um, I do think we're trying to stand on the shoulders of giants. And here's what I mean by that. So uh, the future Pope Benedict, before he was Pope, at one point said that the future for Europe lies with a creative minority. And he's citing Toynbee's idea versus Spengler, who said that civilizations rise and then fall. There is no alteration in that. The framers, by the way, of the Constitution recognized that. They studied all these civilizations and said they rise and they fall. Toynbee said no. There is a spiritual dynamic can be in a civilization, so it can be renewed. Hmm. And he called it a creative minority. And so you have Pope Benedict mentioning the hope for Europe. But I find it even more fascinating that in 2013 at the Erasmus lecture in New York City, Rabbi Sachs, who just passed away this past year, said the hope for America lies with a creative minority. And can you guess who he said was the first creative minority in history? 
I'm going to guess it's somehow related to Babylon. There you go. <laughs> he said the sons of Judah in the Babylonian exile. The sons of Judah. He said they're the best hope for America. A modern day creative minority. Minorities. That's the best hope. And whether or not it would take 70 years, I don't know. But I'm persuaded that he, he was right. That would mean a modern day sons and daughters of Judah who recognize that American Christianity, we are exiles in a land of exile. We would not be shocked when Babylonians behave like Babylonians. We would recognize that there is something exceptional in American history. It is not, as the New York Times says, slavery and racism dating from 1619. Racism has been rampant throughout history in every society that I'm familiar with. New York Times is wrong. Rather, it is exceptional because it is an experiment. It is an experiment that was one established, but the question is, it is it being sustained? Sons of Judah, sons and daughters of Judah, like the sons of Judah recorded in exile, begin where they began, and you see this in Daniel 1, they learn over the next three years the language and literature of Babylon. Why is that, Pat? Because that's uh, a huge formation of culture, language and literature. Well, see, actually, yes, but uh, it, it, these all they, they tell you what are the cultural waters going through your gills. But uh, I guess go back to Timbuktu. 1890 and you get off the boat and you land at Timbuktu, you're now an outsider and you're a missionary. What's the first thing you do? Learn how to speak the language. There you go. Actually, the first thing you do is you go buy food. <laughs> uh, but you, but then you got to know the language, right? That's right. You learn the language and literature. Otherwise, you just can't, you can't and, and, and you are not shocked when Timbuktuans act like Timbuktuans, which if you're from Timbuktu and I'm butchering that, give me grace here. In the same way, sons of Judah will not be shocked by the breach of the walls. Will they lament how they have contributed to that and not just wag a finger? Yes, I lament. That's why you have written for the Babylonian exile the book of lamentations and some in the nation of judah by the river of babylon sat and wept because they realized we're getting what we deserve and we're getting the leaders we deserve it doesn't matter if they're republican or democrat but to have so many of my friends just out and out defend this president because, quote, he's been good for business. And I got news for you. It depends what business you're in. And reminds me of uh, Herbert Hoover before the Depression. He said, the business of America is business. Oh, that's great. I don't urge people to... Uh, read this book because it's just my star but you actually you know actually pat you are we are reading it uh charles taylor's book a secular age one of the things he notes that has been lost back when the church was in the operating in the arenas in which cultures were made when we evacuated that you have the rise of what's called finance especially because uh 
if you don't have any sort of uh, sense of what would be a flourishing life, it gets reduced down to finance. That's, I think that's pretty telling. Uh, that's the, what's that why you have when the, uh, when you had the inception of Harvard Business School way back, hundred some years ago, the rest of the faculty were appalled, not that they were opposed to business, but their point was business comes from the word being busy. Everybody's busy. It, this isn't an academic discipline here. And then you have, by the time you get midway through the century, especially into the 20th century, I mean, into the, uh, this century, most graduates uh, come out, they go into finance. And so we measure the flourishing of a society by gross domestic product or the stock market, which is done, so they're all excited because they go, look what's happened in the last four years. What no one seems to mention is under a Republican administration, which used to be known for fiscal conservatism, we added 33% to the total federal debt. One administration, 33% increase to our debt. No one talks about that. Let me change that. Hardly anyone talks about that. So we are, uh, you know, they joked, they didn't joke, they lamented that part of the downfall for Rome was he just began bribing the citizens, citizenry, they began paying them off to keep them from uprising. Pay them off. How do you pay them off? Give them money. Give them free entertainment. Give them free shows in the Coliseum. Give them $600. That's not good enough. Give them $2,000 more. Where's this money come from? It's growing on a tree right behind the Capitol Dome. <laughs> I mean, no, very few voices are saying. And then this is a K-shaped recovery. And you know what we mean by that? And so this is very reminiscent of the Gilded Age, late 1800s, the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers. But you had a whole slew of population that their fortunes were heading south. And we have those at the top, and that would, that would include me, that would include most listeners here, have done well. And then as I pointed out last week, but I go to a pop-up pantry and 80% of those families, Hispanic, have not done well. And we're pretty blithe to all that as Christians. And we're really more concerned that, you know, the liberal media. Well, what do you expect when you're part of a faith tradition that doesn't invest, doesn't think institutions, doesn't understand the power of center institutions, and sends your kiddies off to some Christian college to go do this and that, and doesn't give two thoughts as to uh, what would it take to earn cultural capital by actually going to becoming a serious journalist and actually contributing to a serious magazine rather than hiding out and now I'm going to write for this Christian magazine. These are reasons why God sent the nation of Judah into Babylon into exile because they couldn't bring most of the stuff in with them. So you can, you can live in a Christian cocoon and think uh, everything's fine. But then if you actually realize you're in exile, then you go, well, then all our stuff with cocoons left back home. This isn't, this isn't making much of an impact. By the way, that's, it's during the exile is when you have the beginning because they don't have the temple anymore, the beginning of the synagogue. And these synagogues spread throughout neighborhoods were to teach. Teach what? Well, the great view in Judaism that's been lost in American Christianity is driven by one verb, remember. And so these synagogues were to remind, remind, not to try to come up with some new fancy three-point outline for the book of Romans. 
it was to remind, remind, remind. That's why you have, even after the Holocaust, Jews hold to this phrase, never forget, never forget. I think we're part of a forgetful faith tradition in American Christianity. And so we're shocked when Babylonians behave like Babylonians. We're ignorant of whether or not we are actually keeping this experiment and keeping it alive. We are, so for me, Pat, the hope that I don't know whether or not God will honor it, but I'm really praying that I have the privilege of serving creative minorities, perhaps even around the world, but at least going to start right here, right here in town, right with a few. It's creative minorities, which generally, but not exclusively, millennials, probably will be a bunch of Gen Z, who will find that American Christianity is too narrow, didactic, abstract, and it's not very life-giving. Who will be reintroduced as the Judeans were that just go to work and second get married and in your body rediscover return remember that in our bodies going all the way back to Genesis those two work and marriage in our bodies it is our bodies that tell God's story and I'm just part of a generation. I'm a boomer. And I find that most boomers in Gen X, if you mention your body, and we're talking about, yes, yes, those parts of your body, they flee. They run for the hills because you don't talk about that stuff in polite society, Mike. Yeah. Uh, great book called our bodies Go- tell god's story uh, by christopher west i'm going through it yeah. right now definitely uh, thought-provoking and a good read so far mike if you're not familiar with it if you're not familiar with christopher west listeners the, the book he just highlighted there easily accessible christopher yeah. i think is trying to just trying to just trying to locate creative minorities uh, mostly in the uh, Catholic tradition by returning them to what John Paul II said were pre-Cartesian, pre-Enlightenment understandings of the faith. That be going that was going back five hundred years before the Enlightenment uh, pretty much engulfed Western Christianity, including Catholicism. Yeah, Mike. One of the things you you mentioned, and we've talked about this before, but lament. And I, I really think it's a, it's been a helpful way for me to process uh, this idea of feeling like I'm in Babylon and not looking at current events with the lens of those idiots or those morons, um, but, but gen- genuinely lamenting and, and recognizing how not only I personally um, have been a part of, of making things this way, but also just uh, as a as a group, whether it's you know me feeling affiliated with the Christian Church or me feeling uh, part of the Republican or Democrat Party, but recognizing how uh, yes, I I have also played a role in the fact that in my society right now, you know these current events are happening. That that's I I'm not sure outside of these conversations, I'm not really sure how exactly I stumbled into that. Um, but I'm curious for, for people that maybe hear this and recognize to some extent, wow, they, they do get wrapped around the axle about this stuff and they have a hard time breaking out of that tendency of those, those morons or those, uh, you know, fill in the blank. It's their fault but they, they at least recognize some sense of it, it would probably be better if I didn't process the world that way. And I, I, I did lament, you know, I mean, some people have that inkling, but they, they don't know how to break out. What would be yeah. the, what would be the yeah. practice that you would recommend to, to find more of a heart of lament? 
Yeah, um, that's a great question. I, I'm right now. I'm remembering a conversation with a friend of mine on our. It was about a year ago. We were sitting on our porch, and I said to him, "Stop reading our stuff," because he was saying, um, "Is this the best we can do?" This is this is a man I saw come to faith, and he's gosh, this is a great guy, great guy, really. You know, he'd be one of my heroes. And um, and, I, and he said, is this the best we can do? And he was talking just about um, the evangelical and American Christianity and so on and so forth. This was a year ago. And I said, uh, stop reading our stuff. Now, here's what I mean by that, Pat. First of all, when you start reading elsewhere, you, you begin to, you look back uh, and you look at a lot of what we churn out and it's, and it's certainly mediocre. And, I'm happy to say, yeah, I'm sure someone could say that about everything I've ever written. I got it. No, I have no pushback there. But uh, it was probably, gosh, way back when I was a church planter, a pastor, pastored one church. But early on, there were just some people saying, you know, women in leadership. And so I just began to read the best of the other side. And I found myself going, these are pretty thoughtful people. This is pretty, this is very, so we had that thing going for five years. And uh, what I found was it takes some of your dogmatism out of your, um, some of your views. Uh, and so I would say, read, read the best of the other side. And now that's going to be difficult because uh, the other side will um it, it's hard it will be hard for a lot of people to read and, and just start out with this no 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 and of course on the other side they're reading our stuff going no 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 so we'll never get anywhere if you don't read the best of the sort of the other side so i'll give you some real simple things and don't think conservative liberal right now, just simply early on, uh, Daniel, I want to say his name is Taylor, but the book is called The Myth of Certainty. So I remember reading The Myth of Certainty and just being shaken because he basically says, as the title implies, the whole notion of certainty is rooted in the Enlightenment. And we just gobbled it up. And I remember, gosh, when I was with her, college ministry for years we wanted to help kids be certain of their salvation so our intentions were fine but you begin to go hmm and so i began to read leslie newbigin and uh, he frames it in, in better ways if you read his book proper confidence you go oh i see because you can be confident in something but also confident that i'm sure there's parts i'm missing here when you're certain you're not missing anything I would urge you to read The Righteous Mind. So here's a man who, Jonathan Haidt, H-A-H-A-I-D-T, who says he identifies as a secular, atheist, liberal. And yet um, he looks at the five, what he believes are the characteristics or markers for a flourishing society and says, conservatives get three of these far better than liberals do. Now, that's very attractive to me because I go, that way it, it means that generally speaking, the truth generally does lie somewhere between two positions. Now, don't be hearing this and saying, so when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, you're saying <clears throat> somewhere, somewhere, oh, but not that's not exactly right. We can't be certain that that's what he said or that's what it means. No, that's not what I'm saying. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. However, having said all that, we're talking more about things like politics, things like could be women leadership. I remember <clears throat> the, the church that my wife and I planted way back in 1782 that, uh, <laughs> you know, I came out of a tradition where um, 
when it came to faith, rather, as a new tradition where only adults were baptized. And there were, I had a good friend who came out of another tradition where infants were baptized. And so <clears throat> we agreed I would write for our church a one or two page, just a quick synopsis of uh, why children ought to be baptized, because I was unfamiliar with it. And he wrote the position paper for why adults. But he had to read the best of a position that he didn't hold to. And I had to write the best of a position that I hadn't held to. Not, not the claptrap that someone in my view would write about the other view. The same thing happened with women leadership. You just gain something from reading the best of the best. And so for me, it's, it's becoming more and more the case. It's people who are not aligned with, they don't have allegiance to the faith that we hold to. But the reason they don't have allegiance is they see major gaping holes in it that we don't see, chief of which would be our view of human nature and how transformation takes place. And they, they just recognize not only is it neuroscience, it's sociology, it's all these disciplines where you have good, intelligent, wise sometimes, thoughtful people who have done serious research who just lament, and I lament too, when they read our stuff and go, would it be that simple? Would it be that simple? And you're reading through um, Taylor's book, and I've written it through two times, and I'm sure you feel, Pat, <clears throat> when someone says, I mean, isn't that a, aren't, Pat, wait a minute, isn't that a secular, isn't that a secular book? Isn't that a secular school? You just lament. You go, oh, that's not the historic meaning. That's not what the church historically hardly understood secular. It's a 500-year-old. Oh. Yeah. And I don't think, Pat, anything will ever change as it didn't in Judah for 500 years with all the warnings until they actually woke up in Babylon and then people began to wake up. And until, Pat, American Christianity wakes up and smells Babylonian bacon and recognizes we are spiritually speaking exiles in the land of exile and we brought it on ourselves. Those people that wake up and smell the bacon and understand behave, Babylonians will behave like Babylonians. Those people could become a creative minority that would be the great hope for the Western world.